Canadians fell in love with Kaylee Humphreys during the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver, when she and Heather Moyes became the first Canadian women to win gold in Olympic bobsledding. And Kaylee will forever remember that first trip to an Olympic podium. Literally, you go through every emotion. You're, you're sad, you're excited, you're elated, you're happy, um, you're overwhelmed, you're panicking a little bit because... You know, all of your dreams have just come true. It is, a, it was an amazing experience. Kaylee and her partner weren't done yet. The duo of Moyes and Humphreys became the first women ever to repeat as Olympic bobsleigh champions when they won gold at the 2014 Games in Sochi. They were also named Canada's flag bearers for the closing ceremony. Kaylee went on in 2018 to become Canada's most decorated Olympic bobsledder after winning the bronze in Pyeongchang. On this episode of Run It Like a Girl, Kaylee Humphreys tells us about the moment that Olympic spark was ignited within her. So I remember watching the Olympics in 92 and somebody who I'd met before, Mark Tewksbury, was a family friend. And watching that, I was seven years old and being able to see the look on his face when he won, it just, it really touched me. And from that point forward, I thought, this is what I want. I want to go to the Olympics. I want to be an Olympian. From her beginnings as a competitive skier, Kaylee takes us on her journey to becoming a two-time Olympic gold medalist and world champion bobsledder. But that journey also includes some heartbreak. Um, my first couple of years in the sport, I was a brakeman, so the person at the very back of the sled which culminated in me uh, going to the 2006 Olympics. That was three years after I started the sport, but I didn't actually get to compete in my first Olympics. I was an alternate. Um, and that was really, really, really hard for me um, to sit there and to watch other people and other, you know, women be able to achieve their goals and dreams. And I had to help them, but I wasn't able to live out mine. That really crushed me for, you know, a good couple months at the end. Kaylee talks to Run It Like a Girl host Bonnie Moak about the importance of having the unwavering support of her family, her strong stance on bullying, as well as her fight for a women's four-man bobsled event. She also shares her thoughts on the treatment of women in sport in the wake of last year's catsuit controversy involving tennis star Serena Williams. Yeah, I think, I mean, Serena handled it very, very well in the situation that had occurred. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's disheartening to know that as females, you are viewed upon for differences other than just your performance, which seems to be the only thing that matters in regards to male performances. Kaylee also talks about being named one of the top 50 fittest athletes in the world by Sports Illustrated. Kaylee Humphreys on this episode of Run It Like a Girl. We're pretty excited today to be speaking from our home in Maydock, Ontario, with Olympic champion Kaylee Humphreys from her home in San Diego. Kaylee, I want to thank you so much for joining us for an episode of Run It Like a Girl. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I think I'd like to start. If you could just uh, tell us a little bit about your drive to become an Olympian, kind of when that started for you and, and what it took for you to get to where you are today. So I remember watching the Olympics in 92 and somebody who I'd met before, Mark Tewksbury, was a family friend. And watching that, I was seven years old and being able to see the look on his face when he won 
it just, it really touched me. And from that point forward, I thought, this is what I want. I want to go to the Olympics. I want to be an Olympian. And, um, and so I started ski racing the following year. Um, I skied from when I was eight till 16. And throughout that process, I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I want to be an Olympian in ski racing. Um, and so, yeah, the passion to become an Olympian, you know, was literally just off of watching other Olympians achieve their goals and dreams. And, and you could tell how passionate they were, how much dedication, um, and how confident and comfortable they felt in that scenario when I wanted that. And I chased that throughout, you know, my career as I grew up, um, I played all different kinds of sports, but skiing was what I wanted to go to the Olympics and be able to do throughout high school, throughout junior high. I ran track, played volleyball, did badminton, um, t-ball, soccer, lots of different sports, which I think really helped develop my skill as an athlete overall growing up. Um, but ski racing was what I wanted to do. And throughout a couple crashes, um, I just became very fearful whenever I was going down the hill. And I realized that about 16, 17 years old, I was never going to make the national team. I was never going to go to an Olympics. Um, but the passion to still become an Olympian was very much there. Sport for me was and ho- always has been a very safe place, a place where I can express myself and where I feel the most comfortable. Um, and so I searched for different kinds of sports as a female. I've always been very muscular. I have very big and very strong legs. And, um, you know, that's just genetics. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to pick a sport that I thought I could be good at, something that looked fun, but something that you know, big, strong legs was going to be an attribute. And that's when I had looked at bobsleigh, born and raised in Calgary. I knew of the sport from, you know, the 88 Olympics and the legacy at Winsport there. Um, and so, yeah, just thought, well, I'll try it. We'll see if not. Speed skating was actually another sport that I really wanted to try that I still really want to try that looked awesome. Um, and so just I signed up online, went, looked, figured out when they were hosting like talent ID camp um, and figured I'd just give it a and who knows. And um, from there, the following year, got invited to try out for the national team and everything just kind of progressed and, and fell into place. I fell in love with the sport fairly quickly, um, felt like I belonged. My skill set, um, you know, really matched a lot of what the sport required um, my first couple of years in the sport, I was a brakeman, so the person at the very back of the sled, which culminated in me uh, going to the 2006 Olympics. That was three years after I started the sport, but I didn't actually get to compete in my first Olympics. I was an alternate, um, and that was really, really, really hard for me um, to sit there and to watch other people and other you know, women be able to achieve their goals and dreams and I had to help them, but I wasn't able to live out mine. That really crushed me for, you know, a good couple months at the end. Um, and then from that point, I tried to turn it around. I knew I didn't want to give up, have that be my Olympic dream and goal. And as hurt and as sad as I was to have not competed, I knew that there was still something bigger and better for me. And that's when I switched to become a pilot. So the person at the front that drives the sled, and um, and so, yeah, since then, that was in 2007, I've continued to grow and learn to challenge myself and my skill and my ability. Um, that's how I do my best. And it's also what allows me to sacrifice and to have that dedication and that drive are the challenges to be, you know, better than I have been in the past. Um, a lot of it comes internally from myself. And I think that's 
part of it is my upbringing, part of it is who I am as a person, um, and then some of it is just influential from other people that I have mimicked, emulated, or learned from. So, you know, just kind of listening to you talk about about your journey and, you know, first in skiing and then in bobsleigh as the brakeman and then as the pilot um, and the dedication that that must have taken, I, I'd like to kind of throw a question in there. I imagine family support is probably pretty important when you're driving to be such an elite athlete. Um, did your family play a, a, a big part in that? My family play a huge part in that. Um, my family have always been there for me. I grew up in a family that believed anything was possible. And the farther that I go in sport, the, the greater the challenges become, the bigger obstacles I face or the target that I have on my back grows, my family becomes even more critical. They become the people that I, uh, that I, re- I rely on huge for, for support. My parents have always believed no matter what, anything is possible. You can be whoever, whatever you want to be, and we will be there to support you. And so growing up within that, I've got two younger sisters. My sisters have both picked a very different path, so it made it easy for us growing up to support one another. We weren't battling against each other at the same point. My sisters have been a huge inspiration and support for me in what I'm doing. And to watch all of us kind of grow up throughout the system believing that um, or throughout our family believing that anything is possible. That's always what it came back to whenever I faced a lot of hardships or, or challenges. Um, I knew my family was there. They supported me if I wanted to do it, if I didn't want to do it. Um, they were there to kind of give me a little, a little check if I needed it to kind of snap, snap out of it. Um, they were there to be very real, but at the same point be support. Um, regardless of what it is I chose to do or what obstacles came in my way. My family has been there when I've succeeded. My family has been there when I have failed. Um, and it, it's not about the success or failure to them. It's just me living out my dream, and they're there to to be a part of that. And so, yeah, my family is my biggest support for sure. So an amazing group of people to have in your corner. <laughs> yeah. So I'd, I'd like to ask, and actually, so this is kind of, uh, it was going to be a two-parter, but now I, I, I want to add one in. So when you talk about, when you switched um, to bobsleigh, what was the feeling the very first time you went down a run? Um, the very first time I went down, not very comfortable. It was not a very comfortable feeling. I think a lot of people watch bobsleigh, as I did on TV, and it looks very smooth and very fun. The ride is actually very rough. The sled is just fiberglass or carbon fiber and some steel there's no springs there's no shocks there's no padding whatsoever um depending on the ice it can be a fairly rough or bumpy ride the sled kind of whips on and off the corners so at no point do you lean you basically get chucked into a corner really hard and your body just goes from you know sitting upright to being you know horizontal or vertical on a corner and yeah, it, it takes some getting used to. There is no way I can describe the feeling. It is something extremely different. Um, the closest thing I can describe to it was, uh, I want to say, five or six years ago, I got the opportunity uh, to go up to Cold Lake and fly in a CF-18 fighter jet. And to me, that was the closest, but yet still very different feeling um, to bobsleigh that I have ever gotten out that there is no feeling. It does not feel like a roller coaster. Um, at no point does your stomach come up because I absolutely hate roller coasters. It's 
yeah, it's a very unique feeling. And I do advise anybody, if you ever get a chance, go figure it out, find a way to go down a bobsleigh run um, on ice because it is, it is extremely cool, but it did scare the crap out of me (laughs) and still does a little bit to this day, every time at the beginning of every year, just because it's, yeah, it's a unique feeling, but I love it. That's, it sounds incredible. Um, and so I guess the other thing I kind of wanted to ask you is, so you've, you've accomplished something that very few people in the world will ever accomplish. What does it feel like to stand on the podium at the Olympics? And now that you've actually stood on the podium three times, does that feeling ever change? Yes, the feeling changes for sure. Uh, the very first time I got to stand on the podium in Vancouver in 2010, um, I was 24 years old. And I can tell you, I did not know what was going on. I was trying to absorb every ounce of everything, but it is a little bit shocking. And although I had planned and prepared and executed what I needed to do, and although I was the best on that day, to know that you're standing on the podium, you're singing the national anthem in front of your family and your friends, it's, yeah, it was, and still to this day, going back to that moment gets me a little emotional. Um, it, it is a very cool, it was a very unique and very overwhelming feeling on all fronts. I didn't know what to expect. But literally, you go through every emotion. You're, you're sad. You're excited. You're elated. You're happy. Um, you're overwhelmed. You're panicking a little bit because, you know, all of your dreams have just come true. It is, a, it was an amazing experience. Um, and to do it on home soil was very, very different than to do it again in 2014 in Russia. I had a giant target on my back in Russia. The race had happened very differently. Uh, four years later in Russia than it did going into and through Vancouver. Um, and because the racing experience was different, it leads to the medal ceremony being different. I'm four years older, four years wiser. I had, you know, more dedication or sacrifice and time put in. There were other people that had played attributes um, to us being able to stand on the podium. And so, again, a, a very different feeling in 2014. 2018, not standing on top of the podium, um, you know, for a period of time, I was upset I wasn't at the top. At the same point, I'm extremely excited to still be on the podium. I had a different partner in 2018. And again, the competition was very, very different. And the feelings associated with the competition, the feelings associated with my teammates, the feelings associated with the four years going into it, the work, the dedication, the sacrifice, the perseverance, the politics, all of it play a factor. So each and every time I have the opportunity to go to an Olympics, it's different. I treat it very differently. And each time, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate just to be able to, to have such a strong competition within women's bobsleigh that it makes it a challenge. And so standing on the podium in any capacity is, um, it's always a dream come true. I, I, I imagine it is. And um, so I've, I follow you on social media and I, I, I love your videos, by the way. Your videos are incredible. And so I think I get at least a little taste or a sense of the kind of dri- drive and dedication you have. And so in 2019, you were named one of the 50th, 50 fittest athletes in the world by Sports Illustrated. What does it take to make that list? Um, I don't exactly know. <laughs> Um, for me, I don't, I don't really know how it came about or how they figure out how it all works. Um, but at the end of the day, just to be on that list, to be amongst 
Lindy Vaughn, Serena Williams, Simone Biles, you know, just from the female side of it. Um, yeah, it's absolutely, it was a huge honor. Um, I think for me, the biggest part, and a lot of where my social media has gone over the last little bit is, is mostly just to show you a day in the life, what that sacrifice and dedication looks like, how I'm feeling, um, just to give you guys a, a bit more of an understanding of what I go through on a daily basis. And I hope in that process it motivates other people, um, you know, to be the best versions of themselves. Obviously, I don't expect people to, to keep up or um, to compare themselves to me. And I don't do it to compare myself to anybody else. Um, fitness for me is more complete. Being an athlete is more important to me than just being a bobsledder and, and being one specific part. Um, I want to make sure that I'm eating the right stuff, that I'm healthy mentally, physically. Um, there's the recovery aspect of it. There's the training side of it. Um, and I think that that sometimes gets lost. I think people assume, well, you're an Olympic athlete. You were born this way. You're just talented. No, I, I work my butt off in order to be here. Yes, I'm fortunate to have the right support at the right time. At the same point, I seek out that support. I seek out the top coaching in the world, the top and the other athletes that will motivate me. Um, and I put myself in scenarios. I train very hard. It's not that I'm lucky. I, I create those scenarios in order to perform on the world stage. And I want people to know that and understand that. And I think that's part of what the 50 fittest athletes on Sports Illustrated, um, Sports Illustrated list is, is all about is it's more whole and, and more complete. And I've been able to kind of showcase that, which I think caught the attention of some people, which is extremely cool. And to know that they value and I'm amongst athletes where it's not just built on one skill set, but built on a whole variety of skill sets that bring you back to being a top elite athlete. That's where, um, you know, I feel the most confident and, and I'm the most rewarded with that title. So I'm going to jump around for a bit then. Cause I think, I think this is a good segue into, into mentorship. Cause, cause when you talk about, you know, people that you look up to or, you know, having an entire, you know, so many people that look up to you, what does mentorship mean to you? Mentorship to me, is about, um, and I've had some great mentors throughout my career, but a big part of it um, is providing confidence, security, uh, advice and or knowledge at the times where it's needed or can be the most influential and have the most impact. Um, it's not about being right. It's, it's about creating that partnership, you know, mentor to athlete, athlete to mentor, um, or just doesn't even have to be an athlete, just somebody you admire that you look up to um, and pulling from that, whether it's motivation, whether it's strength or courage or knowledge, um, being able to provide somebody else with some type of source of energy or power or strength within themselves is a big part for me. Uh, Haley Wickenheiser, Marnie McBean, those are two very strong, very dominant, powerful females that I've gotten to know and been fortunate to know that I've relied on, you know, huge throughout my career that I honestly don't think I would have reached the levels that I've been able to reach had I not had them to ask questions or to look up to. They both achieved something that I've wanted in, in moments of doubt or fear or hesitation within myself. I was able to to acknowledge that other powerful females have done it or been in those scenarios. I now look towards 
Serena Williams being a mom coming back competing for me as an older athlete now within the sport. That's my next step. And to know other athletes do it, have done it, have been successful at it, that helps, you know, provide that confidence in myself to know I have the ability and strength and courage to be able to do it too. So I think, um, yeah, mentorship comes in all different kinds of forms, but being able to provide somebody, and I truly do believe as well, anybody can be a mentor or that source of inspiration for somebody else. Um, but just being able to provide somebody else with some type of skill set, um, you know, helps elevate the game. And within that, then, you know, you, you help elevate everybody else. I like that. You help elevate everybody else. I, I really think I like that uh, view. Um, so you played a lead, an instrumental role in opening the door for women in the four-man sled. And in 2014, the four-man event became gender neutral. And then in 2016, you led the first all-woman team to compete against men. Can you tell, what was that like, championing for that? Um, and what does it mean to you to have accomplished that? Yeah, it's that... After 2014, um, and for, I would say since 2012, I was in constant contact with our president of the International Bobsleigh Association, as well as other coaching staff, um, trying to just get the word out there. It's just something that I was thinking of that I didn't feel as a female was right. Men in our sport and bobsleigh have two men and four men competition at the Olympics, and women. Um, only had two men as a competition. I didn't feel it was right. Guys got two opportunities. Girls only got one. I got told skill set wasn't great. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough. Um, you know, all, all excuses that I felt were, were bogus. So I really tried to, you know, to state I wanted the opportunity to show that everything that they were throwing at us as females was inaccurate. Um, so it took a couple years of lobbying for sure. Um, and then in 2014, after the Olympics, it, I, that was a big source of inspiration for me to continue to move forward after defending my Olympic title. You know, there is that question of what's next. What do you do? How do you get better? How do you increase? What's your next challenge? Um, because I, I am very fearful of just being complacent um, or becoming very stagnant and not knowing what to do. And so out of wanting to challenge myself, out of wanting to be better, to be bigger, to build stronger skills for myself, knowing other females also wanted those same opportunities to develop their skill set, um, I really hit the ground hard in regards to women's for men, women's for men, at, you know, approaching everybody and anybody that could potentially change the fact that women weren't allowed to compete in this event. Um, and so, you know, they agreed, the president and the international federation all got together and they agreed that they were going to make the event gender neutral. So, in, um, so yeah, this allowed for an opportunity for women to compete. Myself, another female from the U.S., Alana Myers-Taylor, we were the first two in the very first World Cup to accept that challenge. Um, it was definitely a... A new challenge, to say the least. We had two races. It was in Calgary. was the very first competition in the World Cup. And we had two races. One was back-to-back, women and then men. Um, I think, you know, they weren't fully aware of timing at that point or how it was going to work because the men had one competition one day, one the next. 
Um, but we were still so excited just to have that opportunity. It's hard in bobsleigh as well because men and women are drastically different when it comes to the physical ability with weight as well as with strength because the sleds do weigh a lot and the start is so important to us. So Alana and I had talked about strategy a little bit. We knew competing with a men's crew was the only way we were going to have a chance to show we could compete and be as successful as the men. Um, that over the years has developed or developed into showing a full women's crew could be able to do it and that we wanted our own women's four-man event. So, um, And that was always the goal. It was never to compete against the men to show I'm as good as the men. It was always to be able to build an event and to show women are as strong, we are as fast, we are as skilled, um, and we are as courageous as the men in our sport and deserve to have both of those opportunities to compete at an Olympics just like the men in our sport do. Um, so part of it was a challenge for me specifically, um, racing double every single week now, elevating the bar to a whole new event, a whole new skill set, challenging myself, doing it in um, a men's event, and then as well elevating women two years later to do it with a full women's crew on tour to have more participation from the women. Um, yeah, that was always kind of the, the goal and the transition. It's been a step-by-step process, but it was really developed out of yeah me trying to, to be better myself and then as well as something that I believe passionately in, which is showing that women – should and deserve to have every opportunity available to them um, if and when they're they're ready and, and wanting to be the best versions of themselves. So, I mean, you are an inspiration to so many people out there. And uh, I'd like to talk a little bit, which I think is actually a good segue into this, um, about, about anti-bullying. And you're a strong voice against bullying. Um, could you tell us a little bit about why that's important to you and uh, what you would say to someone who is experiencing that right now? Um, I'm a strong advocate for I was bullied growing up. Um, nowadays, I think it's more, unfortunately, there's more kids that are than, than aren't. Um, but there's no need for it. It's not right. And at the end of the day, um, yeah, it's something that I believe passionately about. It definitely affected my upbringing and having my family around was what allowed me to get through it. But I also know that not every kid going through it has that same family dynamic. And it doesn't matter what that dynamic is. If you don't have the support to get through it, it's extremely hard. And I don't think that bullying is right. At the end of the day, it's about bringing somebody down instead of trying to elevate your levels or just accepting of who people are, what they believe in um, for whatever reason there's these barricades in the divides of I'm better, you know, you're not as good or in any capacity whatsoever, you feel like being mean to somebody else. And that shouldn't exist in this world. We should be happy within ourselves and we should just respect people for being humans and who they are and what they believe. Um, and so I want to make sure that people understand. And I have a voice being within the sporting world now um, to be able to advocate for things that I believe in. And I believe that bullying should not exist, that it's not right. Um, and that overall, we all deserve to, to be safe and to be able to express ourselves in whatever fashion we feel is appropriate and we shouldn't be um, demeaned for it. And so, yeah, if I can help spread the word, help elevate or help somebody think about, you know, their experience or what they're 
um, what they're living in a different light, then I want to be able to, to do that. So back in the summer, uh, 2018, uh, Serena Williams was, had come back into competition after having uh, her child and wore an outfit that got a lot of criticism and a lot of questions, um, to her about wearing it. Um, and the conversation was around whether or not, you know, uh, men are, are treated the same way, you know, like there's those instances of a, a female tennis player being asked to twirl in her outfit, something a man would probably never, ever be questioned on. I was just wondering, what are your thoughts around those, um, you know, differences between how men and women are treated in sport? I think sport is a, is a great example for this because at the end of the day, it comes down to performance. And unfortunately, Currently, we're in a position where it's starting to change. We're starting to acknowledge that those differences exist and that it's not okay in order to ask women to twirl in their outfit or what kind of lipstick they're wearing because, you know, that's that's what you're going to focus on versus the actual performance side. And in sports, a great caveat for that because there is a distinction between gender-based questions as well as performance-based questions. I think at the end of the day, people need to remember that it's not men versus women at the end of the day. If you're not willing to ask a man the same question as you're willing to ask a woman, if it's not built around performance and the question shouldn't be asked. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, Serena handled it very, very well in the situation that had occurred. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's disheartening to know that as females, you are viewed upon for, differences other than just your performance which seems to be the only thing that matters in regards to male performances um and so yeah i mean in regards to media the biggest thing that i try and always bring it back to when i get asked those questions um and what i hope media moving forward starts to understand is that in sport there is the performance aspect and that's the only thing that should matter. You should be able to wear whatever it is you need to be able to wear in order to be the best version of yourself, um, in order to be safe within the guidelines. Of course, no doping, no anything that everybody, male or female, is, is held accountable to. Um, but it shouldn't matter. Skirt, pants, it shouldn't matter, you know, if your hair done and your lipstick's on or if it's not. Um, at the end of the day, did you show up? Did you perform? Did you do the best of your ability? And what was the result of that? How dominant are you within your environment? Are you producing skills that nobody else could do, will do? Are you trying to better yourself and your other athletes around you? Um, and that's what sports should be about. And that's what the question should be about. Um, and again, I, I just hope moving forward that those that acknowledgement starts to come um, and that when it comes that it's built around a, a performance-based environment more than anything else. So this is the next question is, is, uh, is something we ask all of our guests and I think ties nicely into a lot of what you've been saying, but I'm really curious about what your answer will be. Um, if you could transport yourself back to a given moment in time, whether that's when you're you know, 10 years old, 15 years old, or 20 years old, um, what kind of advice would you be given? What kind of advice would you give yourself? What would the conversation look like? Um, that's a hard one. What kind of advice would I give myself if I could go back in time? Um, I think the biggest advice I would give myself is 
Um, probably A, that it's going to be okay, and B, to believe in myself more. Um, to know that my work ethic, my experience, who I am as a person is acceptable no matter the circumstance, no matter the opportunity, but to believe in, in who I am and what I believe in and to trust in that wholeheartedly, to not doubt myself as a person um, that, yeah, I wish I was stronger or confident when I was younger and to not want other people to accept me, but to be okay in accepting myself. Um, and I wish that my younger self knew that. And I feel like I could have saved myself uh, a little bit of heartache anyways within that. Um, at the end of the day, though, I mean, some of what I went through growing up allowed me to be who I am today. And would I change any? Not necessarily. I think it just some advice just to say, you you know, you're perfect just the way that you are and continue to to take steps forward, continue to grow and, and learn and be the best version of self. That's the most important thing. Well, Kaylee, I just, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat with us uh, for an episode of Run It Like a Girl. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Run It Like a Girl is hosted by Bonnie Moak. Brian Long is the producer. Web design and technical assistance provided by Dan Moak. And music courtesy of the talented Brooklyn Gillichuk. On the next episode of Run It Like a Girl, as Canadians wade into the unknown waters of legalized marijuana and potentially a multi-billion dollar industry, Dr. Carrie Cramp is hard at work in her lab trying to figure it all out. Carrie heads up the Applied Research Center for Natural Products and Cannabis at Loyalist College in Belleville, Ontario. She's also designed and is teaching an eight-month cannabis applied science program aimed at getting graduate students jobs in the cannabis manufacturing industry. Dr. Carrie Cramp on the next episode of Run It Like a Girl.